down. There we go. While he's setting that up for me, um, my goal today and how I dressed was to give Pastor Chuck a little bit of a dilemma. So some of you have been here and have heard Pastor Chuck give me a hard time. So we're kind of ribbing each other back and forth. Um, he, he gave me a hard time about not wearing a collar. So this time I, I, I stayed stubborn. I'm not wearing a collar, but I am wearing a jacket. So, so ball's in your court, Pastor Chuck, when you get back. So if you come out in a tuxedo, I'll have lost. So, oh, and that's just being recorded for Pastor Chuck. Wonderful. That's great. So uh, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. What a great day. Um, I'll be honest, uh, when, when I was asked to, to speak on the 19th of June, I didn't know it was Father's Day. And so I'm very grateful that the worship team did a lot of Father's Day stuff because I got nothing for dads today. So insofar as specifically to dads. <clears throat> However, um, so several weeks ago, we had two weeks of prayer emphasis. This week and next week will be a care emphasis. So as I was thinking about this concept of care, it drove, it drove me back in my memory to when I first got out of college. And Joanna and I actually went from Pennsylvania, where we graduated from a Bible college, and we flew all the way to California, and we taught at a school up in the high desert of California. Now, the high desert part's important. So we were about two hours outside of Los Angeles, population 13 million. And we were in this high desert area. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's where Edwards Air Force Base is at. So it's up through some mountains. And then you drop down into this valley that used to be beautiful until Los Angeles stole all its water. So it's still called the Antelope Valley. But it should be the Desert Valley. It's pretty much brown. And it's famous for Joshua trees, if you've ever heard of a Joshua tree. Well, anyway, so we were teaching there. And partway through the year, we had some training so we had a person on the board who was a fireman, and he understood some dynamics that we as people outside of California had no idea about. So we had to have earthquake training, because another distinctive of the Antelope Valley is the San Andreas Fault. We've all heard of that, right? Runs right through that valley. So if the big one happened, we were going to be right there. Now the dilemma, though, is half a million population Antelope Valley... 13 million population Los Angeles. Who was going to get all the attention? Los Angeles. So we knew that pretty much because of the number of people who lived there and because of the separation that would happen with the San Andreas Fault going and the mountain roads being destroyed, that we were going to have to be self-sufficient for a while. We were going to have to learn to care for ourselves. And so what we actually did for this training is we, each of us teachers were given a role that we trained for. And we actually, this sounds morbid, but we actually had a set part of the school that was set aside as the morgue. And we had a part of the, suit, the, the, uh, the school that was set aside as a station for first aid. And then we had general healthy people, you're here. And my job at the time was, that I trained for, was to be the triage guy. And I literally, if there was the big one, and we had part of the building collapse. I had to go from room to room and figure out who needed what physical care. And if you think about it, if you have a room of 10 people and you just start working on the guy with the bad ankle, the guy with the beam through his spleen, 
might need more attention than the guy with the ankle. But if you don't triage them, right? So, but the point, I got a little sidetracked there, sorry. The point that I'm making here is that when we were in that training, we had to learn that we had to be self-sufficient for a while. As as a school, we had to be self-sufficient for a while. Can you see where I'm going with this? So right, right now, we're without a lead pastor. Are we going to sit back and go on hibernation mode? Or does God call us to continue to move forward as a church, even while we seek God's will for the future? We're going to have to take care of ourselves for a while. Now, the truth of the matter is that's always been true, regardless of whether we have a pastor, a lead pastor or not. The church is designed by God to be a group of people who care for each other. And that's what God calls us to do in this moment as a church. Each of us needs to be a part of this thing that we call care. This week, we're going to talk about more of an internally focused care. Next week, we're going to hear more about an externally and internally focused care. But today, I'd like to ask you to uh, invite you to open in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4. To Ephesians chapter 4. And here's what we're going to learn today. Today, we're going to learn that care starts with me. Care starts with me. So I want each of you sometime this week, you're going to look at yourself in the mirror. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, I want you to say to yourself, care starts with me. Because it's not just me up here saying that, it's you, it's all of us. It's me, it's you, it's all of us who are responsible to drive this church forward. And so in in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see two ways that we can drive care in the church. The first thing that we can do is we we can pursue unity. We can pursue unity. We can pursue oneness. That word unity, uni, right? One. So unity can be restated as oneness. And that's the actual word that's translated in most of our translations as unity. It's literally the, the word oneness. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to read through the whole thing. Bear with me as I read through the whole thing. And then we're going to take a look at how we can carry this out. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building, of, building up of itself in love. Hear the word of the Lord. So the first thing that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at verses 2 through Six, but before I do that, sorry, before I do that, I want to hit a little bit of context. Remember, this is the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while he's in prison in Rome. And there he's writing back to the, the church at Ephesus, where he has been, had spent about two years of his, of his ministry there. And he had built up this church. And he writes back this, this book of Ephesians. And in this book, he really emphasizes the church as the body of Christ. The church as the body of Christ. And he uses all throughout the book, and even in this section, this metaphor of the church as a body. And we're going to see that even as we do uh, work through this passage today. So therefore, uh, excuse me, in verse 1 he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So that therefore that you see in chapter 4 verse 1 is kind of the... Ephesians equivalent of Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here he says, therefore, I be- prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. So this is the big hinge point in the book. Now, the first three chapters do have some doctrine in them, but are, uh, excuse me, do have some application in them, some very significant application, but they're primarily doctrinal. And the second half, starting with this, is deeply theological, but it's a little bit heavier on the application side. And that's what this pivot point starts. So here, based on the fact that God saved you and placed you into the body of Christ, that makes us want to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We're called to salvation in order to walk in a way that's worthy of that salvation which we have received for free. So that transitions us then into our first point. Our first point is we need to pursue unity. And then remember what that word means. Unity means oneness. And there's a whole cool series of plays on words that I'm hopefully going to be able to show you in the English here. You can see it a little bit more in the Greek. But it's, it's a really cool figure of speech that, or series of, of plays on words that happen here. But the play on word is from this oneness. But here's what we're going to learn. Here's what we're going to learn. In order for us to pursue oneness, okay, we're going to have to learn to put up with each other. We're going to have to, and some of you are thinking of me right now when you say that. The truth of the matter is, though, that we're going to have to learn to tolerate one another if we're going to pursue oneness. Think about different personality types. 
I hate to say this, but I just know that some of you find my personality type, if you're around me too much, probably a little bit annoying. And I apologize for that ahead of time. But let's be honest, there's some of us who find your personality type a little bit annoying. Now, not me, of course. I don't find anybody annoying. But, and of course, you don't find anybody else annoying. But that's the truth, right? We each have a personality, and sometimes we're next to people with slightly different personalities. Now, add on top of that the potential of hurting each other's feelings by maybe offending somebody, by saying the wrong thing, or maybe even being understood wrong when we say something and people misunderstand what we do. Those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to learn to tolerate if we're going to find oneness. Look what he says in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. The word for tolerance there is not what we hear in the modern day. In the modern day, when we hear the word tolerance, that's taken on a new meaning in the last 30 years. Tolerance used to mean I put up with, the way the Bible uses it. But now it's often used as someone, you've got to, not only do you have to put up with what I believe, you have to say I'm right no matter if you disagree with me or not. It's okay to disagree with people, but you have to learn to tolerate each other. And literally the Greek word there is about as equivalent as the word put up with as you can find. So if you think about tolerate, it's to put up with. And you go, well, that doesn't sound very gracious. Well, look what he says. Tolerate one another, how? In love. Now we just added the hardest part, right? Our tolerance must be a loving tolerance. But look, look what he says, though. He says, with humility, the beginning of verse 2. Gentleness and patience. Uh, the term humility is to literally think low of yourself. So when we're not tolerating someone else, guess what we're doing? We're thinking of ourselves just a little bit higher than we should. And so the corrective to that is for us to be humble, to think lower of ourselves, because we know that ultimately everything that we have has been given to us by God. And so when I get into a situation, when you get into a situation where you're having a struggle tolerating somebody or putting up with somebody, good time to remind ourselves of humility. Good times to remind ourselves of our need to think a little bit less of myself and a little bit more of others. He also says gentleness. Boy, don't, don't you just wish that wasn't there? I, sometimes I just want to go to people. And you do too. And that's when we need to show loving tolerance. And then there's patience, right? The ability to last a long time under a burden, right? In this case, the word is actually to be able to handle a lot of anger, right? So in other words, you may be really, really angry. You might be extremely angry, but you're able to handle that because you've made others the priority over yourself. You've made oneness the priority over yourself. And so therefore we can tolerate or put up with each other and i thank you ahead of time for putting up with me now he says that we tolerate one another there's another aspect of it we need to be eager to pursue oneness we need to be eager to pursue oneness look at verse three being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit 
in the bond of peace. So that term be diligence is a really, it's kind of a hard to translate word. And it basically means be eager towards something. Okay, and the best illustration I can think of that is, how many of you have had dogs here? Okay, so you'll understand this. How many, have, how many have a dog who when you grab the, I can't think of the word. What's that thing? The, little, the leash. Thank you. When you grab the leash, what does the dog do? They go crazy, right? They are eager to take the walk. They're bouncing around. You can't get them to stop. You can barely get them to get the leash on them because they're eager. They're being, in this word, even though it's translated here, be diligent. It's to be eager, to lean into, to want to do something, to be ready to do it at a moment's notice. And that's less about the attitude that we have in our hearts to do it, which was the first thing. Right, to put up with one another. That's about your heart. This is about your heart's attitudes towards wanting to pursue unity. If there's any time in a church's life when unity could be a struggle, it's going to be in the next however long it takes us to, to receive a lead pastor from, from God. And there's going to be times that we're going to be tempted to not be unified. Now, now, let's, let's be clear about something. Being unified doesn't mean being zombies or all in some sort of a hive mind where we give up our brains and we just think, let somebody else think for us. Unity is saying, I'm going to put aside my personal wants so that I can row in the same direction with a group of people. And we will take what we believe as a core and we're going to move in that direction together. And I know what some of you are saying, because there's part of my heart that wants to say this too, but you, you don't understand, Dave. You don't understand. They wanted me to wear a mask all the time, and I didn't think we needed to wear it. Or some of you are saying, nobody wanted to wear a mask, and I wanted them to wear a mask. I cannot tolerate or be unified with those people. Did we see churches split apart over this stuff? He went to Michigan. Or send his kids to Michigan. I went to Michigan State. You really want me to get along with him? <laughs> or, yeah, I like the Packers. You like the Detroit Lions. You can't possibly expect me to get along with them. Or, let's ratchet it up a little bit. That's kind of fun stuff and funny stuff. But what about this? I went to that small group, and you know what? The first time I was there, I don't know if they meant to do it or not, but they ignored me the whole time. Why would I want to be unified with these people? Or maybe you went to a small church, and at that small church, somebody actually hurt you. You can't expect me to be unified with those people. I'm just going to show up on Sunday, I'm going to leave, and I'm just going to do my thing so I don't have to deal with people, because people hurt. And maybe you're there. Maybe that's where you are right now. Well, here's, here's what I would think Paul points out in the text. In verses four through six, he gives us a lot of ones to unify around. Remember, we're supposed to become one, but we're all these individuals who have quirky 
personalities. We have sin that we do against each other. And God says, and Paul says, and that is to say God says, um, I've got a lot of ones for you to unite under. Look what he says in verse four through six. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones that we can unite under. Amen. We're one body. We're one body. We're not two bodies. We're one body. We have one spirit. Just one. The Holy Spirit. Uniting us. We have one hope of our calling. Not two. One. Not five. One. We have one Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. Do you get the idea that Paul wants to find these things, these one, all these different one things to bring us to become one? You see? Can, can we unite under those banners? Can we set aside our petty differences and unite under the banner of one triune God, one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one faith? Can we do that as a church? I think we can. I think we can. I think we have to. Where are you today? How are you on the unity scale? Are you committed? Are you committed to being part of one body? Are you committed to oneness? Are you committed to forgiving people who have hurt you in the past? Who maybe don't even know they hurt you? Now, if you've been the other end of that and you've hurt someone else, are you willing to go to them and fix things? Are you willing to tolerate different personalities? Are you willing to tolerate different political beliefs? So that we can serve together under the banner of Christ. Can we do that? I think we can. I think God calls us to. So the first thing he says is we need to pursue oneness. Now he's been focusing on this body of Christ, emphasizing us as this big, huge body. Now what he's going to do is he's going to zoom in on us as individuals. So this is what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. But to each one of us. Now, when we read that, we probably don't see the one very quickly there. But in the Greek, it's very, 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 very obvious. So what he could have said is, to each of you was given a gift. Would that have been another way of saying the same thing? Everybody nods yes. He could have said that. But he says, to each one of you. And those are two different words. He could have just said, to each of you was given a gift. But he didn't. But he says, to each one of you. So even though we're a part of this big body, we can't hide in this big group. God is calling each one of us to something. And in order to fulfill that, do you know what he's done? He's given each of us gifts. 
to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every single one of you here today who is a believer in Christ, who has been given the Holy Spirit to reside in you, you have been given at least one gift that you can use in the body. At least one. Notice what it says. It's Christ who gives it, and it's Christ who gives it to the measure that he chooses. So some people have more gifts. My wife is way more gifted than me. I can't complain. I kind of like the fact that she's more gifted than me, but that was Christ's choice. It wasn't my choice. So we don't want to sit around and be jealous of other people's giftings, but what we want to do is we want to make sure that we find out what that gift is and use it somewhere. Some of you may never want to speak in public. That's okay. You can find some quiet way that you can serve this body, that you can serve in this community. There's all sorts of ways we can do it. But he says that each one of us has to be a part So each one of us, for our whole to be unified, each single, every single one of us needs to be active in order for us to accomplish this unity. Now, if you've ever read through Ephesians 4 before, you probably scratched your head like I did the first few times I read verses uh, 8 through 10. Because this is probably the most challenging interpretive puzzle, if you will, in the book of Ephesians. Um, so I'm going to do my best. I'm going to ask you, because well, here's what I found. When you find a really hard passage, dig in because it's really rich. The payoff is great. But you got to dig in. You got to put your seatbelt on. However you want to put the metaphor, put your thinking cap on. Whatever metaphor you want to use for that. Let's dig in here. Let's figure this out. And let's see how rich it is. So here's, because here's what he says. Therefore it says, verse 8, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all in all. Anybody want to take a crack at that one? It's a... a, but it's, it's beautiful. So here, here, but it's also challenging on a number of fronts. It's challenging because it's actually not a quotation. It's a paraphrase. It's actually not a quotation. It's a paraphrase. And I want to show you something. If you could put that parallel between, uh, I believe it's Psalm 68, 18. If you could put that up for me on the screen. There we go. So I want you to just read the Old Testament text and see the difference between the New Testament text. And it's going to freak you out at first, but it's okay. There's a really good explanation for it. In the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 18 says this, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. Wait, that's different. Because Paul says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That's not that different. And he gave gifts to men. Now, if you come at the Bible as a person who doesn't want to trust the Bible, this is one of those verses you can go to to cause problems. But there's a 
a very straightforward and simple illustration, uh, reason for this, and I'll, I'll explain it as we go. But I wanna, what I want to emphasize for now is that Psalm 68 is a chapter about God conquering, about Yahweh, the name of our triune God, Yahweh conquering. And in verse 18, do you mind if you just keep that up for me for a while here? I'm going to use it for a little bit. Thank you. Um, In Psalm 68, you have God, Yahweh, our triune God, ascending with captives and receiving gifts. In the paraphrase in Ephesians chapter 4, we have Paul saying he ascended, attributing that to who here? Jesus. Oh, think about that for a second. What is Paul saying about Jesus? What is Jesus? Or who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the same God that is conquering in Psalm 68. Well, that's pretty cool. So another passage that proves that Jesus is God. But it's even more than that. So part of of our misunderstanding of this comes from our culture. We don't live in a warring culture. Every spring, what happened in the ancient Near East? What did kings do? You go out to war. That was what you did in the spring. After you planted and you were waiting for the crops to grow, guess what you did? You went out to war. And guess what you did when you won the war? You brought all your captives and you put them in a train behind the king. And then the king would take them into a city and go, hey, look what I did. I just won. Look how great a king I am for you. Right? Now, do you think the king just kept everything that he had? So there was this procession or a triumphal entry, if you will, that they would do and they would bring those captives with them. But after they brought them in, what would they do with those? Well, if I, let's say I was a general for the king. He might give me some of those gifts. Why? Because I'd contributed to his efforts. So part of the culture of the day was you would bring those gifts that you were brought. The gifts there is figurative of captivity, right? You have spoils of war. You bring that into the city. Then as a king, you distribute those to the people who helped you win that war. And so Paul, just paraphrasing this, just jumps to what everybody would understand, which is when he ascended on high, he led captives a host and he gave gifts to men. So he kind of skips out that middle step. Okay. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is our king who conquered and is now turning around and giving gifts to us. You see? So this is really emphasizing the fact that our king Jesus has conquered. Our king Jesus has conquered. Look what he says in verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who has descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all in all. How did Jesus conquer? Did Jesus conquer through war? Where did Jesus conquer? At the cross. At the cross. So Paul is using this play on words here. In order to rule, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, according to Psalm 110. 
in Psalm 2. So he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling. But what did it take for him to conquer and accomplish that? He died on the cross. He descended into the ground. And there, through death, he conquered. There, through death, he conquered. So the very act of dying for our sins was how he conquered. And so descending was a part of the important part in order for Christ to be able to ascend to the Father, be seated at the right hand, and be our conquering king who then distributes gifts to us. That's pretty cool. We have a king who is ruling. We have a king who is reigning. And we have a king who is in charge. And he's the one who distributes gifts to us. Now, it's interesting because at first he said, in verse 7, each one of us has received a gift. Now he's going to focus in verse 11 on giving a limited number of gifted men to the church. It's going to come back around to all of us, but he's going to focus now in 11 about giving gifted men to the church. Look what he says in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Most of us have probably heard if we've been around the church much that the term pastor teacher there that's connected with that and should be could be thought of as a hyphen there so that the pastor teacher is one function or the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist are individuals. The pastor teacher is one. We want a pastor teacher as our leader, don't we? But look what he says. Look what he says. The pastor teacher was given, the gifted men were given so that, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire a pastor and he's going to do all the ministry. Is that what that verse says? What's this verse say? We hire a lead pastor So that he can train us to do what? We do the ministry. We do the ministry. We're not hiring somebody to do the ministry. We're hiring someone to minister to us. To help lead us in the scriptures. From the scriptures. And to equip us. To move forward as we as a body. Minister together. That's exciting. That's exciting. For equipping of the saints, verse 12, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity, oh, the oneness, there's the oneness again. You see? So each of us uses our gifts. We bring in a pastor teachers who train us to do the work of ministry so that as we work in ministry, we achieve oneness. That's beautiful. So we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now here Paul is going to start to use some, uh, some meta, a metaphor here of, of a mature man. Okay, so I, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination this morning. Okay, So um, I want you to just kind of imagine, if you're on this side, you can... Imagine a mature man, whatever you think of as a mature man, standing right here. He's probably taller than me, okay? And he's, yeah, whatever, you, you put a picture in your mind of a mature man, okay? If on this side, you can put him over here. Me, I think 6'4", 220. That's about, for me, what I think of a mature man. Maybe a lumberjack, maybe wearing some 
flannel or something. For you, maybe it's somebody else. But he's going to use this, me- this, this metaphor of a, a mature man to compare the church to. So he, sa- so he says this. Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I don't want us to be idolaters, so I'm not going to ask you to imagine Jesus here. Okay, That's why I said a fully grown human, a mature man. Okay? By the way, some of your translations probably have the perfect man. Right? That term is actually used of a grown man. Okay? And the word doesn't always mean moral perfection. Okay? You can be, I can have a perfect rope for the job. Right? That's not morally perfect, but it's, it's perfect or it's mature. For when it's referring to humans, particularly with human growth, it's referring to a full-grown human, in this case, man. The reason we know this is look at the beginning of the next verse. What does the beginning of the next verse say? As a result, we're no longer to be what? Children. You see the contrast between fully grown man and a child or children? So here's what he said so far. He says this, I'm going to give you pastor teachers so that they can equip you to do the work of the ministry and you're going to be built up to oneness. And that oneness is going to have a result. There's even more of a result. He says, as a result, we're no longer to be like children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So do you see the contrast here? A mature man is not going to be thrown about by the waves. A mature man is not going to be led around by the nose, by deceit. By the way, notice there's a doctrinal element here. It's not just that we're going to bring somebody in to help train you how to do ministry. They're going to train us in how to understand the word of God, how to interpret the word of God, how to teach the word of God, how to use the word of God in when we do ministry. So there's a doctrinal component because when we are mature, we don't see a a video on YouTube and get sucked away, away from the faith. We don't read a new book that takes us away from the core of what the scriptures believe. Because we're mature and we're not deceived. It's one of my favorite verses, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So now I want you to add, I want you to add something to your picture. Now this body metaphor the head of that mature male body on both sides of the stage here is Jesus. In the picture, that's Jesus. So that head's going to be perfect. Whatever you imagine is a perfect head, put it on that body. Because that's what you got. But he says, by speaking the truth to one another in love... We are to grow up so that our body matches the head. Do you see? The head is perfect, but if our body is kind of weak, if one part of our body is not functioning, it's like we have a a shriveled arm. And a shriveled arm does not look good with Jesus' head. A lame foot or a broken knee does not look good with Jesus' head. We're to grow up our body to match what Jesus looks like in the head. 
But he says, do that by speaking the truth in love. And this word, actually, the word speaking is not in that. It's actually truthing in love. And it's, it, it is translated often speaking the truth, but it's, it's more about being a truthful person. Do you see the difference? Can a, can a person who speaks the truth be deceptive? Yeah, they just don't use words. They use lack of words to deceive. All right, confession. Back when I worked at camp when I was younger, we used to play tricks on each other, right? So we would take somebody, take something from one of our colleagues at camp, right? And we would just grab it and then we'd give it to someone else. This was all in fun, you realize, right? But we'd give it back to them. But they would, did you take my spoon or whatever at the cafeteria table? I don't have it. You see what I did? Because I gave it to someone else. I took it. I stole it. And I gave it to someone else. And they would ask them, well, do you have it? And they're like, I, I didn't take it. Yeah, it's a little game, right? And so we learned really fast to ask both questions. Do you have it? Did you take it? All right, where is it? Now, that's silly, right? But we, what we need to be is the kind of people who are truthful, full of truth. Can we do that as a body? Can we be truthful with one another, but in a loving way? So I love it, because as we do that, we grow up into this body that matches the head. That matches the head. So let's, let's kind of bring this home. Maybe you're here today and you, you, you have no idea what we're talking about. And you're like, I don't understand this unity thing. I, I kind of understand the goal, but I, I've, never, I've never understood how you guys can do that. Part of it may be that you just don't understand Jesus. Remember, for Jesus to ascend, he first had to descend. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, satisfy God's wrath for our sin, and pay that penalty so that if we'll accept it, we join this unity, this body of Christ. Maybe you need to do that today, and then you can join us as a body. We would love to have you do that. We'd love to talk to you afterwards if, if you want to. There'll be someone down here in front right after the service. For those of us who are part of the body, are we committed to unity? I mean, are we really committed to unity? Are we willing to put up with people like me? Or those people that we just find just a little bit annoying? Are we, li- are we willing to be humble, to be patient, to be gentle? Maybe you have a relationship that you need to fix. Now, Maybe that other person doesn't know it. Don't go, if they don't know it and you're annoyed with them, just fix your attitude, pray to God. That'll be a, you don't have to go tell them you were annoyed with them. They don't know, right? But fix it. Let's fix it. But if you have a broken relationship in this church that you know about, you need to find a way to fix it. Maybe even get some mediation. We need to be a unity. And then, can we plug in? Can we plug in? For some of us, some of us just come on a Sunday and we leave and that's all we do. And you consider this your church home? Your part, I'm gonna be very blunt with you, you're part of a shriveled arm or a shriveled leg. You're not helping us as a body 
become the body that fits the head, Jesus Christ. We want everybody to plug in and help. And for some of us who have not been, maybe that's just jump, jump into a life group or jump into a, or jump into a um, uh, Sunday school, not Sunday school, small church, thank you. I always forget that term, forgive me. Don't know your gift? Just jump in and serve. Find a way that you can plug in. It doesn't have to be a formal ministry. You can plug in, help us out. You know, we don't need to do it today, but when we take down chairs, you know, that's helping ministry. Maybe you have a gift that you can use and find out how you can plug in and use it. Or maybe some of you who are involved need to find out what your gifts are and then formally use them in some sort of formal ministry. But for us to have a body that matches the head, Jesus, we need everybody to commit to unity and we need everybody to use their gifts. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we want nothing more than to serve you with our lives because you've given us everything. Everything that we have is from you. You've saved us. Pulled us out of the darkness, and you've given us life. Lord, I pray that as we move forward as a church, that we will be a church body that looks appropriate to your headship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.